Tonight's topic is a very important one, and it's a, basically going to revolve around a question a lot of people ask. You know, we've been talking a lot about the Oral Torah and what it's comprised of, how it was assembled, why it was assembled, we're going to talk about as well. Uh, and last week, for example, we spoke about nine different reasons why the Oral Torah was oral and not written down. Um, Previous week we spoke about what the Oral Torah is comprised of, what's it made out of, what the interrelationship between written Torah and Oral Torah is. Uh, And tonight's topic is the question of, we have a gap. We have a gap between when Moses gave us the Torah, both written and oral, till when the Oral Torah was finally committed to paper, was written down in its final format, and then we have this 1,500-year gap where the transmission of the entire body of oral Torah had to be done orally, had to be done without any uh, formalized writing down of, of this information. Now, the oral Torah is an enormous body of information, uh, so much so that the Mishnah comprises 63 books, the Talmud comprises 39 or 37, depends on you, how you count, uh, Maimonides in his Halacha, comprises 14 books. In, in the newest edition of the Halacha of the Tour, we have 22 books. There's an enormous amount of information. And we claim that the same Torah that we have today that is in our oral Torah, which is written down now, uh, is the same Torah, oral Torah, that the Almighty gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses gave the Jewish people. So the question that we, have to ha- that we want to ask is, how, what was the process of transmitting of the Oral Torah from the times of Moses until the time it was written down. Uh, and people, com- people commonly ask, like, uh, Rabbi, did you ever play the broken telephone game? So you play broken telephone, and you have a simple message, you transmit it orally, right? And it goes around the room, and from one thing, you know, you say, uh, you know, green ice cream, and before you know it, you have some entirely different message. Uh, so the question is, well, how does the oral Torah not follow that same logic? We have information. Moshe is given the Jewish people. He is transmitting the information. They hear it. They give it over to the next generation, to the next generation. And before you know it, it's an entirely different message. That, that's the question. And of course, we have other examples of this idea. We have, uh, stories that get embellished, you know, over history, lore and tradition and folklore and legends and these things. They start off as something and then they develop into something entirely different. Who's to say that the oral Torah that we have today is the same oral Torah that the Almighty of Moshe at Mount Sinai? Now, importantly, if the oral Torah that we don't, we have today is not the same, we have a lot of problems. Because remember, like, it's, it's one of the principles of our faith, one of the 13 <coughs> principles of our faith is that the Torah that we have today is the same Torah that the Almighty gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Same written Torah, same oral Torah, no differences, no discrepancies. So that's a principle of our faith. Is this something that we're relying on faith alone? Is this something that just, it's, you know, this dogmatic policy that we just accept with no questions asked. This is the way it is. This is the way it was, even though maybe it's a little bit illogical to assume that this could be done so perfectly for such a long time. So that's the question. Um, so I, I want to kind of address this from multiple different angles um, because I believe that when we analyze the issue critically, we'll actually find that not only um, was it possible for it to have been preserved in its accuracy for so long, but indeed it was likely 
and indeed the odds of it going awry, the odds of it going in different directions than the way it was intended, are more unreasonable reasonable than it being preserved accurately. Okay, so let's start from the, from the bottom up. Firstly, like we said last week, the oral Torah was not written down in a final canon. This is a critical point. When Rabbi Judah the Prince, in the second century of the Common Era, wrote down the Mishnah, so he wrote down oral law. But that was not the first time the oral law was committed to paper. The innovation of, of Rabbi Judah the Prince was not to write down oral law, rather to write down a finalized, codified, canonized, final version of Mishnah, of Jewish law. Indeed, in every preceding generation, starting from Moses, everyone took notes. And everyone used their notes and shared their notes and copied their notes and perfected their notes. And there was notes everywhere. Every leader, every teacher, every scholar, every parent. Everyone kept notes for themselves. It was, oral Torah was everywhere in written form. The only thing that it was not was in a finalized version. So, in fact, Maimonides describes how Rabbi Judah the Prince would actually collect a lot of these existing uh, works and perfect and uh, assume uh, uniformity with all the existing written documentations and oral traditions. So that's the first thing. So kind of the question's a little bit mitigated when we actually realize that the oral Torah indeed, maybe it wasn't finalized in a finalized version, but it was still written down in some form or another. It wasn't just entirely oral. Uh, point number two is that it's really not so long. So 1,500 years sounds like a lot of time, but if you actually look at the generations, if you look from, from, from Moses to Joshua, right, generation of generation, the actual list of generations is only 30. So it's almost as if you have to find a way to get 30 leaders of people to not make mistakes in transmission. So that's, I mean, we think about it in terms of hundreds of years and who knows, maybe there's thousands of people. Really, Maimonides delineates 13, uh, 30, about, I think it's 31. 31 people that the transmission of Torah f- uh, flowed through them. And these are people of tremendous genius, tremendous dedication to cause, tremendous commitment to the Jewish people and the preservation of Torah. And if you think about it in those terms, it's not so long, it's not so many people, and if you have people dedicated to get it, get it right, uh, you'll find a way. Uh, so much so, like if I told the people in the room, we'll play a game of broken telephone, but the goal is not to say the message as quickly and as slurred as possible, rather to say clearly and, and coherently, me to you and you to them, and it's important. And if, if we don't get it right, someone gets shot. Imagine if I said that. I'm going to say a message to Allison, and we'll go around the room. But if we, if we don't get it perfectly, then one of us is going to be shot. Theoretically, right? Just play, with, play along with me. Do you think that we could get it accurately? I think so, right? What if there's 100 people in the room? Uh, and if, I, if, I, if, it's, if it's a message of five words, 100 people in the room, or else someone, one of us gets shot. Yeah, like it's not so hard. We we kind of assume that the transmission was a, was harried. Yeah, you have to give over some sort of message. Let's make sure we don't make any mistakes. But you know, the Torah is the lifeblood of the Jewish people. If we get disassociated from Torah, 
we're disassociated from our destiny, from our mission, from our heritage. Uh, there was a, uh, a rabbi who lives in Israel uh, who spent a lot of time trying to research this thing. And he, he took a bunch of kids, 30 kids, and he promised each one of them that if they have a message that they pass around accurately, he'll give each one of them $50. And you know what? Lo and behold, the magic worked. He was able to buck the trend of the broken telephone rule. right? Because if every kid is committed to know that they have, they have to get their message right, and it's transmitted in a way that the transmitter and the receptor is committed to, to, to understanding it, well, it'll work. So the comparison is, 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 not a, is not a very good comparison. But I want to kind of go through a little bit of how this was done. We think about this. We have, of course, there's the leaders, but what about the people? How was, how was oral Torah taught? Written Torah, it's simple. When you're bar mitzvah, when you're in first grade, you get a book, written Torah, and you have it, and it's yours, and you're good to go. What about oral Torah? How was that taught? How did Moshe teach the oral Torah to the Jewish people? So the Talmud tells us in the book of Erevin, this is on page 54, and ask the question. The rabbis asked, how did Moshe teach the oral Torah? Moshe got it from God. Moshe is a prophet, a prophet with direct communication from God. He studied it from God, and then Aaron came in, and Moshe taught it to Aaron. So, any given law, Moshe, like for example, the law that the Ramam gives when he describes this, is the law of a sukkah. We know he's supposed to sit in a sukkah. But what does a sukkah look like? What's it comprised of? How many walls does it need to have? How tall? How small? Right? How, what, what is the schach made out of? All those critical questions are all part of the oral Torah. The Almighty teaches it to Moshe. Right? Moshe memorizes it. Aaron, who is the next in line, the vice leader of the Jewish people, he comes into the room and Moshe teaches it to him, all the details. When he finishes teaching, Aaron sits to his right and then the sons of Aaron come in. The sons of Aaron come in and Moshe teaches it again. So now Moshe teaches it once just to Aaron and then once again to Aaron who's sitting on his right and Aaron's kids who are sitting uh, to his left. Uh, and then a third time, uh, Moshe teaches to, to the elders of the people. And lastly, Moshe teaches it a fourth time to the entire assembly of the Jewish people. Thus, Moshe taught it four times, once just, once just to Aaron, and then once to, to Aaron's kids, and once to the leaders of the people, and then once finally to everyone. And then Aaron, and then Moshe left, and then Aaron taught to everyone, and then Aaron left, and then Aaron's kids taught to everyone. And then Aaron's kids left, and then the elders taught it to everyone. So in essence, everyone ended up hearing it a minimum of four times. That was the process. What happened once uh, they finished a given law? So the Ramah continues here. Afterwards, even though they finished studying it, Right. If they had the official four times, everyone studied a minimum of four times, they would study amongst each other. In essence, the, uh, the experience at Sinai was very similar to the experience of like studying for your exams. Everyone sits together, so you maybe have someone who's going to lead the study, and then you learn from different, different personalities, everyone has their kind, kind of the right flavor, but afterwards... Everyone gets together and asks each other questions and, and further clarifies and analyzes and reviews again and again. 
And that would be the process that was employed by every single mitzvah. Moshe learns it from God, he teaches it to Aaron, he teaches it to Aaron's kids, to the elders, finally to everyone, Aaron teaches, and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's how Moshe taught the Torah to the Jewish people. So it's not like some message that you clandestinely share in some secret society. Like that's how we assume you're transmitting some sort of idea. It's the, uh, you know, it's the, uh, what are those societies called that they get together and, you know, the, the, the Masons, they, they gather in, in, in some, you know, dark corner where they share some secrets. And that's not the way it is. It's, it's Torah ta- taught publicly and, you know, Torah taught with the intention of it, of it, of it being understood by everyone involved. This is, this is, this is what the Torah was. The whole story of the Torah. From the middle of Exodus all the way to the end, all we have is, teach the Jewish people as follows. How was this done? This is how it was done. Okay, so what about post-Moshe? What happens then? So Moshe dies. Joshua's the leader. Joshua dies. He, you know, this, he, he's replaced, and they're replaced, and there's 16, uh, judges and then prophets and then king, all these leaders of the Jewish people. H- how was the Torah transmitted after Moshe dies? So the Talmud tells us it's the same way. There were teachers and there were students, and every teacher had to teach a minimum of four times. And by the way, if you look at any standard edition of the Talmud, you'll notice the top lines that correspond to Rashi and Tosvos. There's always four lines, always in every in, in every page. The, the books, like, if you look at any, every two pages of Talmud are, is, is set up differently. But the top is always the same. There's always four lines. And that's a remembrance that we have to, if you want to study anything, you have to, you have to do it a minimum of four times. In fact, uh, I saw today while researching this that uh, the Marsha says something very interesting. He says, the first three times you study anything, that is in the realm of Shalolishma. That is when you study Torah, not for its sake. You study because you want people to think you're cool. People to think you're wise, people to think you're dedicated, all the different reasons of the world besides for the study of Torah itself. The fourth time you study, that's Lishma. I don't know where he gets it from. It's, a, it's an interesting idea that this idea of studying it four times, it's been established all the way since Moses and it's still relevant to us today. You want to do anything, you want to remember something, you study it four times. Four times, then you have a chance of the Maharsha, one of the commentaries in the back of the Talmud. Okay, so that's, uh, the Talmud tells us that even in modern times, anytime you teach, you have to repeat it a minimum of four times. Uh, now, what if you teach someone, you teach them four times, and then they don't get it? What then? So the Talmud goes on to say, if the guy doesn't get it, you have to keep on teaching them until they understand it. And not only that, until it becomes absolutely abundantly clear. We'll see a little bit later that the relationship that we have with Torah today is vastly different than the way it was in the times of the oral Torah in its purity. When the oral Torah was taught in its purity, people had a tenacious relationship with Torah. They were obsessed with it. This was their life's purpose. This was their mission. This was what their life was about. This is this preservation and study of Torah. Maimonides, he's the rational one, right? What does he write? Everyone needs to study Torah. Well, how much time? How much? How much time should you dedicate to study Torah? Maimonides was famous for writing that we can't say I'll study Torah and let other people worry about how, how, how am I going to feed my kids. He wasn't into the whole kolo phenomenon. You got to work. Well, you're twelve hours. You work for three hours. 
and he studied for nine. So Maimonides is a little bit of a glimpse, a little bit of a window, a little bit of an insight into what the traditional Jewish attitude towards Torah study and scholarship is. It was literally your life's mission. Your life's called This is our life. We should study Torah day and night. This is what the people were like. So the four was the minimum. You don't get it with four. You go as many times as needed. And not only that, but Rabbi Kiva goes on to say that you have to make it so clear, not just that they understand it, but that it, it resonates within the students. It has to kind of, you know, it has to impact the student from within. And only then do you fulfill your duty as a teacher. And I think, you know, if we, if we kind of reformulate the way we look at the teaching and the study of Torah to classical standards where this is what kids did. This is what the aspirations of the young, this is what parents hoped that their children would be great Torah scholars. But even at a minimum, you know, today the minimum is you have a bar mitzvah and you fumble your way through the hieroglyphics, which is Hebrew. That's the minimum today. The minimum in times past, when the oral Torah was oral, was 14 years of dedication, 12 hours a day. That, that was the minimum. Like that was... You know, that's you're doing your bar mitzvah, you're getting your confirmation. That, that's what it was. With those standards, could you imagine trying to transmit the Torah accurately? I think so. And there's more. There's a, an emotional story the Talmud tells of one of the rabbis. His name was Rabbi Prada. And he had a student who was slow. How slow? He would have to teach him every halacha, every oral Torah, explain it to him 400 times. And every day, could you imagine? That's what they call, they call, they call it, they call it a nudnik. Uh, Rabbi, I don't get it. Can you say it again? Again. Again and again and again. 400 times, finally he got it. So one day, listen to this story. It's an emotional story. One day, the rabbi's teaching them, and, and the, you know, there are 252 Lessons in, you just got 150 more to go. And someone comes in and tells the rabbi, I, I, we have to take care of something, something important. So he tells him, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'll get to you when I'm done. The guy's there outside there waiting, waiting his turn. Finally, they finish the required 400 repetitions of the law. And the guy says, I, I don't get it. It's like, what? I did 400 times. Why don't you get it? Why is today different than every other day? So the slow student explains, he says that ever since this guy came in, I've, I've been distracted. Because the, he's there, he's pacing, he's waiting for you to finish. I'm worried, are you, you, know, are you, are you going to leave? Are you going to bounce out in the middle? I was so worried, I couldn't even concentrate. So the, student, so the teacher tells him, okay, we're going to do this all over again. And I'm assuring you that I'm not leaving before we do this another 400 times. And indeed, that's what they did. They, they sat there another four times. Eight hundred. Can you imagine eight hundred times teaching the same thing to this to a student? I, I can't either, right? Of course not. You know, but that's what he did eight hundred times. And finally, after eight hundred times, he got it. And you know what happened after he got it? Talmud tells a tremendous. After they finished, there was a bat call. A bat call is a minor level of prophecy, and the bat call announces is that Rabbi. 
Prada, because of your commitment to teaching the slow student 800 times, you, I'll give you two options. Either you merit to live for 400 years, you live only one time, or you will assure that everyone in your generation will have a portion of the world to come. <coughs> so he opted for the latter, and the Almighty said, you opted for the latter, I'll give you both. Because you were dedicated to other people, you'll get both. So this story is told right after we're told about the dedication that Moshe, or the four times that Moshe had, and then the unlimited amount of times that all Jewish teachers are tasked with teaching from then, uh, from thenceforth. Uh, and, you know, I think in, in, in light of these standards, you know, what does it say, A, about the student? Can you imagine the student? The student, his life is getting the Torah study. It doesn't matter if it takes them. Can you imagine? Hundreds of times. After 300 times, I, I would give up. Anyway, who, who wouldn't give up? Right? But if this is all you cared about in life, to get clarity in Torah, in oral Torah, well, then it doesn't matter how many times it takes. You're committed. That's from the teacher, from the student side. From the teacher side, you know that your responsibility in life as a teacher of Torah and the Jewish people is to ensure that you teach your students, as many students, as well as you possibly can. The student is there. You don't stop teaching. I did my due. I, you know, the, the, the bell rung. It time's up, right? I, I put in my 9 to 5. No, it's not a 9 to 5. You're not trying to fulfill your obligation. You're, you, you are committed to a national mission of teaching Torah. If, you know, if so, that, if that's what your life is about, then you'll, 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 you'll do it 400 times, you'll do it 800 times. But I think when we, we, we rec- recognize what things were like, what the standards were, what the, you know, what, what were just the basic mores, what the basic attitudes that generations, that, that those generations had towards Torah study, it makes it a little bit more palatable, a little bit more feasible that all of oral Torah can be conveyed without any mistakes, or at least any mistakes in the central transmission. Is it possible that one guy taught his kids something wrong? Of course. But one guy making a mistake, off to the side, so to speak, of the central transmission of Torah, that doesn't affect the Torah uh, itself. Well, what about us? Are we obligated to know Torah as well? You know, How many of us can name the 54 sections of the Torah, just the names? Or this, how many of the books of Talmud, just the names of the books of Talmud, can we name by heart? As a nation, and maybe this is partly due, I would say likely it's due, because now we have a crutch, because all Torah is written down. So it's not as life, life or death whether or not we ensure that the Jewish nation will continue. Because remember, if, the Jewish, if oral Torah ceases, our nation is done. We're over. That's it. It's over. It was nice. It was a nice experiment, and we failed. But now we have a crutch. We can fall back. The oral Torah is written down and won't be forgotten. But that kind of makes us a little bit more lax. You know, maybe we could add this to last week's discussion. That maybe is, is, is a tenth reason why the oral Torah has to be oral, because that puts the onus on the nation to be dedicated to Torah, because the stakes are so high. And, and, and if, if, it's, if it's written down, well, we could... Let someone else take care of it, or worse comes to worse, we still have a backup plan of, of, of the oral Torah. But the Talmud says like this. Talmud says, this is a standard, just picking um, of, of what the standards ought to be. 
famous Gemara, famous Talmud in, in, in Kiddushin that says that we have to study Torah, that it should be you know, so on our fingertips, we should never even have to hesitate. Any question? Anyone ask me, all of Torah? You shouldn't say, oh, I think it's... Okay. No, right away, give an answer. We should be as assured in our Torah as we are that our sisters are sister. Right? The verse says in uh, the verse says in uh, in Proverbs, you should say to wisdom, you are my sister. We should be as closely connected to Torah as we are with the fact that this is my sister. You don't have to like, uh, well, is she my sister? Let me check her ID. We don't do that, right? You know, this is you. Additionally, the verse tells us, this is once again from the Talmud there, we should bind them onto our fingertips and write them on our hearts. That's what, that's what the relationship we're supposed to have with Torah. If we have that kind of relationship, or if we even fathom what that dedication relationship is like, the question really falls away. Of course the oral Torah will be transmitted accurately. This is the mission of the Jewish people. We'll make sure it happens. Now, how successful were they? What do we know? Is there any kind of time stamp in history that we could stop and say, okay, let's look, you know, five, six hundred years after Moses, what was, what, you know, what were the nation, what was the nation like? So the Talmud gives us such a snapshot. Uh, this is at the, in the middle, or towards the end of the first temple era. Uh, there was a righteous king of Judah, his name was Chistiah, Chistiyahu, uh, and he took a sword, and he placed the sword at the entrance of the study hall. And he says, whoever's not studying will be stabbed. Can you imagine me at a law like that? Capital offense. If you're negligent, if you take time off from Torah study, you get executed. Now, the question maybe can be asked, was this a little bit metaphorical? You know, was it some sort of you know, a proverbial sword or not? That's a good question. But either way, the idea is clear. To them, they viewed oral Torah's transmission as an existential responsibility of the Jewish people that was so important that there was no room for mistakes. And every child and every man and every woman, everyone had to know all of oral Torah. And indeed, they made a census. And they looked from Dan to Beersheba, from one end of Israel to the other end of Israel, and they did not find a single Amma Arts, a single non-Torah scholar. Not even one. They tried. They tried to find the guy. They couldn't find him. Additionally, they went from Givas and Antiphras, this is other ends of Israel, and they did not find not a young child, not a young female child, not a man, not a woman that was not bucky, that was not absolutely clear in the laws, the very complex laws of purity and impurity. Remember, in those times, the laws of purity and impurity were very relevant. You know, if you were pure, you could go to the temple to eat certain holy foods. If you were impure, you had to avoid contact with other people. Like it, the, Those laws were very relevant. They could not find a single kid who didn't know those, those laws in, you know, down to their last minute detail. So indeed, you know, we have this snapshot in history that it works. And I think that last point leads us into our next point. We assume, erroneously, but we assume that the oral Torah was transmitted as ideas. 
ideas, ideals, lots and lots and lots of ideas. 63 books worth of ideas. That's a mistake. Oral Torah was the way of life of Jews. That's what it was. How do you know how to put on a shirt that someone, did you read it in some book? Just, you know, when you were two or three, your mom put your shirt on and then eventually you learned how to do it yourself. Like, how, did you ever read how to cut your nails? I don't ever read like in a, in a book. Uh, how, how, do you, how do we all know? How, how come there's uniformity across the world about how to cut your nails? But it's not like someone said, uh, you know, okay, Howard, there's this idea of cutting nails. This is how you do it. You know, it's all theoretical. It's not, it's not theoretical. The Torah is very practical. And every element of Torah was very practical. My children know that if there's a red light, you stop. If there's a green light, you go. And then if there's a yellow light, it depends. If mommy's driving, yeah. you slow down, right? And daddy's driving, you make sure you make it, right? My kids know that. They say they call me out if I, if I miss it. If I say, oh, I turned red on the way. How do they know? Did they read in some book? How do they know? Did anyone here read, this, read in a book? Did you ever have to have some sort of consultation with some official documentation from the, you know, from the state or from the county that says this is the official rules? No. This is the way of life. This is what we've been living. This is every day we do this countless of times, countless times. Jewish law is not some sort of ancient, archaic, and arcane and esoteric ideals that are only practiced by some people at some times. This was the practice of the Jewish people throughout their lives. This is how they lived. And even today, if you ask my kids, they never read in this book, what does what, what do tefillin look like? Remember, this doesn't appear anywhere in the written Torah. We mentioned that already last week. What does it look like? They see it. You bring it to shul once, everyone's wearing tefillin, it's black boxes, different compartments. My kids, sometimes, they, you know, give it a kiss. You know, give a kiss. You know, the kiss my tzitzis, right? They have tzitzis. They know. They know what tzitzis is. Well, where does it say what tzitzis is? It's not the written Torah, it's in the oral Torah. So oral Torah is more about teaching. It's just less about teaching. It's more about a behavior, a way of life of a nation for generations. And that doesn't need to be taught formally. You know, for formally. It's a way of life. Like I said, it's, it's observational. Kids in the time of Chistiyahu, right, they knew the laws of purity and impurity. Why? Did they read it in some book? No, it wasn't written in a book. Maybe it was written, the details and the fine details were written in some notebook. Right? But it, was, it, was, it wasn't a book that they read. Maybe they were taught. They were taught as kids. But also they observed. They saw their parents, you know. If, if the parents went to a funeral, right, they behaved as someone who was a, tum, a tummy mace. And therefore, they didn't go to the temple. They didn't need certain sacrifices. They had to go to the purification process. They had to go get the red heifer. Like, they behaved like that. This, is, this was common knowledge. Everyone did that. You know, it's like kids learn how to ride their bike. That's what they do. They want to ride their bike. They ride their bike. They're good to go. So we have a little bit of this, of this today. You know, kids who grew up in a, in a, in a Torah-observant family, they know all the laws of Shabbat before they ever even go to yeshiva. How? Laws of Shabbat is so complex. H- how do they know it? Because they behave it. And from a very early age, the parents show them, and they see their parents. And they, you know, someone once asked uh, Rabbi Jacob Kamenetsky, one of the America, who's actually my namesake, Rabbi Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, a great uncle of mine. 
Uh, so someone once asked him, how do you teach your kids to make blessings? Blessings, such a central part of Jewish life. You've got to make a hundred blessings every day. Well, how do you teach your kids to do blessings? She says, I don't know. I never taught my kids to do blessings. I just did blessings and they copied me. But that's pr- the primary method of transmission of oral Torah was not done in the classroom. It was in the house. Every Jewish home from the very earliest age. Kids know. And even today, kids know that there's, you know, there's a Talmud. My kid, my, my eight-year-old son, anytime I'm with any students of mine or any in a Shabbos meal, I, and someone says, oh, there's a Gemara in, I don't know, Bechoros that says this. He's like, oh, I'm going to go get it. He runs to my office, finds the, finds the Gemara, brings it to me. So he knows. He grows up with the knowledge. He can't read a, a page of Talmud yet. But he grows up with the knowledge that there is this collection of books called the Talmud, and he knows how to read the names of the Talmud, and your father is so excited when you bring it to him, and we open it, and we read it, and it's wisdom from Moses at Sinai. That's oral Torah. Because oral Torah is not ideas. It's behavior. And if it's, if it's behavior, it's, it's so much easier uh, to, to remember it. We all know what the four species that we take on, on, on Sukkot is. Not in the written Torah. The written Torah says you take a really nice fruit. What is that? A pomegranate? Is it a lemon? Is it a, is it a beautiful apple? Everyone knows it's an etrog. How do the kids know? Well, when they were three years old and they went to preschool and nursery or whatever, the day before Sukkot, they all came home with an esrog and they had pictures of esrogs and they saw their dad had an esrog and dad said, don't touch it because you want to pull off the top. So they know you're supposed to pull off the top. Kids know all the laws. How, how do they know the laws? They didn't go to school. A Jewish life breeds knowledge of the Old Torah. You live a Jewish life, your kids will know the vast majority of all Torah. We have a lot of we have a hard time because the more distant we are from, from a Jewish way of living, the more distant we are from the Torah that's evolved with the Jewish way of living. And that's compounded uh, in our world where we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices, we don't have the agricultural laws of Israel, and therefore it becomes so much harder. I had a question this year. Listen to this question. In Israel, in the 19th century, there was an innovation. And the innovation was called Heter Mechiro. This solved a lot of problems and created even more problems. What problem did it solve? The problem it solved was that there's a law of Shemitah, and the Shemitah says you can't do work for seven, uh, every seventh year. And then people said, I'm not doing it, or people said, we'll starve. So they made a new innovation called Heter Mechir. Heter means a, 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 a permission to sell. What they would do is they would sell fields to non-Jews, and a non-Jew is not obligated with the laws of Shemitah. So, workaround, right? Loophole. That's why we're the best accountants in the world. Right? The non-Jew is not obligated by the laws of Shemitah. So, he'll be the official owner. And thus, we could kind of operate the field. And we could have food. And he'll give us a kickback. And we'll make, make sure it works out. We'll buy it back after Shemitah. So, that was developed in the late 19th century in Israel. Uh, when time got better, times got better. Uh, they, the rabbis and leaders of the, of the, of the uh, community in Israel said, yeah, maybe at a time where things weren't as developed and the community wasn't as strong, that was an okay loophole to follow. But in modern times, where it's so much easier to either import um, produce from outside of Israel or to find other workarounds, we shouldn't rely on it. 
fine. But some people still do. So today we have, last year was Shemitah, and there are some fields, some lands, some <coughs> farmers in Israel that still rely on this Hetem Mechira. But the vast majority of Torah observant Jews would refrain from consuming any Hetem Mechira <coughs> produce. Fast forward to 2016 in Belden's. So Belden's is the local uh, grocery store, and I'm shopping, and I go for uh, Israeli sunflower seeds. And I've been buying Israeli sunflower seeds in Belden's for years. And I grab the bag, and it's the same bag it's always been. I put it in my, uh, in my cart. I buy it. I go home. Where it's Shabbos. We're enjoying Shabbos with the family. <coughs> I call my kids. Get me the sunflower seeds. Get me the sunflower seeds. We open up. We're all consuming. It's delicious and wonderful. And then I notice on the package, it says big letters. Heta Mechira. It's the same exact package, but on the bottom it says Heta Mechira. Heta Mechira, which means that this produce was produce that was worked upon the field was worked upon on Shemitah, but they sold it to a non-Jew. That's their workaround, and it's a loophole that people don't rely on anymore. So I have a bag full of sesame seeds, full of sunflower seeds. I'm halfway eating it. What do I do? This is a real Shemitah question. So the problem is you cannot consume it, but you cannot throw it out. You're really in a pickle. It's, it's food that has the status of Shemitah, but you can't eat it. So you can't throw it out because that's status Shemitah. It's a complicated question. And if you ask an American rabbi, like I did, they'll say, Shemitah, I don't know. I'm dealing with all my other problems. I don't deal with Shemitah here. This is not Israel. In Israel, during the Shemitah year, it's Shemitah 24-7. Everywhere you go, there's crash courses on Shemitah. Every, every rabbi gets up to date on it. Every year there's new books and new courses, and, right? That's the life there. In America, we're so distant, right? One time you have a Shemitah question, it comes up. But one of the reasons why, get to back, back to our central point here, one of the reasons why oral Torah is difficult for us in some areas is because we don't observe them. If we had the temple around, we would all know the various different kinds of sacrifices, all the different kinds of sacrifices, and what are the rules, and what are the exceptions. We don't know that because we don't operate like that. Temple's going to be rebuilt, God willing. And then the first thing, everyone's going to have a crash course. Right? We're all going to go to a webinar online, a crash course on the laws of a Passover sacrifice. Because all of us are going to be flying to Israel. What's the first thing you do, by the way, when Mashiach comes? You, you get the news. First thing you do, you book flights for Pesach in Israel. Because if you wait a second, you book flights. You book a flight to Pesach in Israel. If you wait a second, the prices are going to skyrocket. Why? Because there's an obligation of every Jew to who's able to to go to Israel on Passover when the temple's rebuilt and and be part, partake in the festivities and in the consumption of the Passover sacrifice. First thing you do is book a flight. Next thing you do is find a webinar because I'm telling you there's going to be there's going to be YouTube channels dedicated towards all the various details of. Different sacrifices. That's what's going to happen. And it'll be, suddenly will be so relevant to us. Suddenly our life will say, I got to get to know all these laws. And you know what? Very quickly, we'll pick it up. Pick up where we left off. Because that, you know, that's the way it is. You know, you, you adopt a new, you have a new job or you have a new, you know, you, you, you have a new job, right? So the first time you get there, it's kind of how, how do you drive here? Where do you park, right? 
And then once you've been working there for a week, like you do it in your sleep, right? You know exactly where to park, you know exactly when to go, you know exactly, right? What are the short, you know, shortcuts and workarounds? When we behave with Torah law, we know Torah law with all the details written and all together. And the more we observe, the more we'll just learn by, so to speak, by a by attrition, by just, you know, by just exposure to a Jewish way of life teaches us about the Jewish way of life, i.e., otherwise known as the Oral Torah. Uh, thus, the question of how the Oral Torah was transmitted accurately uh, for so long, um, for so many years, it's, it really assumes that we're transmitting ideas. But if it's a Jewish way of life, well, then that seems much more palatable. But not only that, we have an accounting of 1,500 years uh, from Moses till the Mishnah was written down and then continuing on till the Talmud was written down, wherein we don't find any records of mistakes or misunderstandings in the Oral Torah. We do find a little bit. The beginning of Machlokas, the beginning of disagreements happens within a couple of hundred years of the writing of the Mishnah. In fact, one of the reasons why the Mishnah had to be written is because Machlokas disagreements started to fall into the transmission of the Torah. So my question is, if, as we had assumed previously, if the Torah, the oral Torah, left unattended, left unwritten, is likely to go awry, well, how come we don't have accountings of all these disagreements, like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Saul and Solomon. We don't have it. We, the first accountings of disagreements come much later. And the answer is, is that there's another element towards ensuring accuracy in perpetuation of all Torah. We have, on top of just the methods of instructions, like we outlined previously, we also have safety measures to ensure that if mistakes do happen, they're quickly rectified. We nip them in the bud. So, for example, prophecy is existing within the Jewish people all the way up to the beginning of the Second Temple era. If you have any this, any problem, any any misunderstanding, two rabbis go different ways in, in opinion. You have, you have an argument. What do you do? Well, you can go to the prophet. Prophet has a direct communication line with God. You could clarify any mistakes. So this actually shortens the amount of time that we're on our own, so to speak, all the way from 1,500 years to almost 500 years, which is much less. 500 years, well, what's that? It's only a couple generations, right? We have prophecy. We have also the Urim Vitumim. Urim Vitumim were the, uh, the Kohen of those breastplates that had some magical powers wherein you were able to communicate with God via that uh, certain letters would light up. Incredible. And that was in existence in the first temple, not in the second temple. Uh, so we have these offices, these institutions of, of Jewish leadership in the form of the high priesthood and of the prophecy that would mitigate a lot of the easy mistakes that potentially could fall for on our own. And there's more. The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a body of legal scholars 
and uh, Torah leaders of the people. That was established by Moses. If you take a look, we read a couple of weeks ago in the in the parsha, uh, in Numbers chapter eleven, uh, verse sixteen, the Almighty tells Moses, "Gather for me seventy men, and these will be the elders of the people, and I will." The Almighty says, "I will bequeath some of my." greatness, so to speak, to them, and they'll help with the leadership of the people. So Moses establishes a Sanhedrin. It's known as the Sanhedrin. 70 plus Moses, so that's 71. And that institution of Jewish leadership was in existence almost uninterrupted from the times of Moses, so from 13, uh, the 13th century before the Common Era, all the way until the fourth, the middle of the fourth century of the Common Era. So we have almost interrupted, there were some exceptions, but almost uninterrupt, uninterrupted, 1,700 years, a body cons- comprised of a minimum of 71. Indeed, during some parts it was 120, the Anche Knesset Sagadola, which is the Sanhedrin under the leadership of Ezra. But even later on, there was there were 71 scholars, legal scholars, uh, whose sole responsibility, not sole, but primary responsibility was to, ins- was to mediate disagreements in oral Torah transmission. Not only that, so it's 71 scholars plus a bench, a bullpen, of 69 backup scholars. So it's essentially the 140 greatest scholars of the, peop- of, of the, of the people were congregated in Jerusalem, which is in, by the temple, in the epicenter of Jewish life, and their primary goal was ensuring the continuity of the oral Torah. And in fact, we're told in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, a very long, very famous verse, when you have a disagreement, there's a wonderment. Two rabbis, one guy says this, one guy says that. Disagreement between two laws, between two bloods, very complex laws of which blood uh, becomes pure, which one's impure. Uh, between various uh, uh, negas, which is uh, uh, skin illnesses, you have disagreements. You get up and you go to Jerusalem and you come to the priests, to the Levites, to the judges that are around in that time, and you present the question, well, this is the Supreme Court. This is what it is, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And you have to follow what they tell you, and you have to guard what they tell you, and the Torah that they, they instructed you have to do, you should not deviate from what they tell you, not right and not left. Talmud tells us, what does that mean? If they tell you right is left and left is right, you have to listen to them. So we have this, this kind of this end point, this final say in uh, mediating disagreements in Torah is the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was ever-present in Jerusalem. Later on it moved. After temples were destroyed, it went to Yavne, it went to various other places. But it was in existence for 1,700 years with almost no gaps. And they were the last stop that you had. And if there was a disagreement, yeah, maybe there was. You went to them and they clarified it. (coughs) That was the bastion of Torah. That was the wellsprings of Torah that taught Torah to everyone. Uh, and in fact, the role that they played in ensuring continuity of Jewish law was so critical that the Torah tells us that if you have a judge, so two judges, 
some town to have a disagreement. They go to the temple to follow the law. And they present their arguments in front of the court. And the court votes in a way that is a final vote. Uh, that one of them is right. Other one they made a mistake. And they go back to their towns. And that judge who, who was disproven by the Sanhedrin, he continues to preach his, mis- his mistake. He doesn't accept the authority and the ruling of the Sanhedrin. That is a capital offense. That's called a Zakin Mamre. which means a, a rebellious elder. This is such a strict law that well, he's teaching something, right? Well, you know, what does it matter? He's still teaching Torah, right? No, because he is threatening the very foundations of our religion. If we start splintering, if you have two religions where some people are operating one way, other people operating the other way, what happens to our, our, our mission, our destiny? What happens to our nation? And in fact, just uh, to impress this point, the Zakhan Mamri, the rebellious elder, is not executed right away. In, in Jewish law, in Jewish uh, capital, uh, capital uh, crimes, the halacha is that they have to be executed right away. We don't let people languish on death row for decades. But this is an exception. They wait until the aforementioned holiday and all the people converge. We all fly in to, on Passover to Israel. And that's when they execute him. Do you know why? Because everyone has to know that if you question the authority of the Sanhedrin, you're undermining the institution that is ensuring the continuity of the Jewish people. And everyone has to know that because you're right. Some mistakes can, disagreements can happen. Mistakes can happen. There could be gaps, certainly localized gaps in the transmission of the oral Torah. But if we let that fester, if we let that go out of, out of control, we're done, we're done as a nation. And the Sanhedrin is the safety measure to ensure that that won't happen. Uh, finally, what happens if a mistake indeed does happen? But let, let's say the Sanhedrin got it wrong. Now, there's no way for us to know that this ever happened. But let's assume it did. Let's assume the Almighty came and told us in a prophecy that there was a disagreement. We went to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin ruled one way, and they were wrong. What happens then? So I want to talk about this a little bit more in a future class. But the truth is, nothing happens. You know why? Because they might have gave us a pure, unadulterated Torah. Our mission and our responsibility, our responsibility, the people, the nation, is to perpetuate it as best as we can, as accurately as we can. We have to be committed 100% to ensuring that that happens. But we're not angels. The Torah wasn't given to angels. The Torah was given to us. We're told in the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah is not in the heavens. It's here. This is it. The Torah is ours. It was God's Torah, now it's our, our Torah. In fact, when you study Torah, you're taking God's Torah and integrating it into your mind. It becomes your Torah. We pray, give us our Torah. Well, it's God's Torah, right? Yeah, it starts off as God's Torah, but it becomes ours. And indeed, this may say, sound a little radical, uh, but we'll talk about this uh, hopefully in in the future. Let's say we know for sure what God thought. Somehow we knew miraculously what God thought. 
But following the rules of the Sanhedrin, we vote in the opposite way. We overrule God. The responsibility of ensuring the continuity of the Torah is ours. The responsibility and the right. This is the, the mission of the Jewish people can be simplified as to continue the transmission of the Torah as accurately as we can, but with following all the responsibilities, the uh, demand that we study Torah incessantly and unrelentingly, uh, the assurances of the Sanhedrin, the making sure it's a way of life. A mistake happens? Well, the Talmud goes as far as to say that the Almighty is bound by the court of humans. Because that, that's the way it works. The way it works is that if we do our job and we do it to the best of our ability, even if there is a mistake, that becomes Torah. It's a little bit of a radical idea. We'll try to develop it in, 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 a, future, uh, in a future lecture. But either way, to back to our central point or central question, point of contention. Is it a problem to ask how is the Torah transmitted accurately, the oral Torah is transmitted accurately without any mistakes for 1,500 years? It's a good question. But it's important to not have a simplistic slant to that question. To assume that silly mistakes in transmission, like uh, the form of a broken telephone, will happen in, uh, in the transmission of the oral Torah, that, that's a mistake. That, 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 that's a, it's a that, that's, not, that's an incorrect question to ask. Why? Because A, the game is to try to make mistakes. And the goal of Torah is to ensure that no mistakes happen. So that's number one. But number two, it's, it's, it's not just transmitting ideals, it's transmitting way of life. Not only that, it's a culture, a culture of study that we have had. We continue to have to, to, to a large extent. You know, there's more people studying Torah worldwide than any other advanced form of scholarship. Even to this day, Torah people, how many people t- view Torah as, as being the most important thing in the world? It's a minute fraction of the world, yet there are more people studying Torah in the form of absolute scholarship than anything else in the world. Till this day, as you know, 0.00 whatever it is percentage of the world, the point I think 0.02%, it's a t- tiny fraction infinitesimally insignificant, or at least that's the way we ought to be, of the world, yet our national pastime, our commitment to Torah, our culture of learning is vibrant till this day. But that was amplified a thousandfold when the Torah was only oral. It was amplified in ways we can imagine. Every kid knew everything because that was their life. Their kids today, they know the sport that it used to be, certainly, in the 60s and 70s. Every kid knew how many RBIs uh, Mickey Mantle had, right? How do they all know? How do they memorize all these statistics? Well, that's their life. They'll, they'll know it. Their kids today, are, they know celebrities, right? How do they know so many celebrities? You know, how, how do they keep track of all, these, of all this nonsense, this Pokemon stuff? How, how do they do it? Well, the human mind is a remarkable thing. If, if you are committed, if you give me the 14 years of 12 hours of study, even you can memorize all of, all of oral Torah. It's not, it's not so hard. All you need is commitment. Our question is from a place of, if we're assuming that the Jewish people were as uncommitted to Torah 
then as they are now, that's a good question. But we have to realize historically the Jewish people were, were committed. We are committed today still, but in way in way, a thousand times more committed we were when the Torah was only oral. With that culture of learning, it's no miracle that the Torah, all Torah was transmitted without mistakes. We do find some disagreements, minor disagreements. We'll talk about why disagreements happen. That's a future class that we have, I have scheduled. How disagreements fall and how do we deal with disagreements and how do we navigate out of the problems that, the, that, that arise from disagreements. Those are all important questions. But for the vast majority of the time, there's no disagreements. And that is not some sort of leap of faith that we're making. It's just following the, the rules of how it's uh, adjudicated, number one, but also of how it's studied and how it's imparted and how it was imparted and how four was the minimum, but even hundreds of times, even 400 times, even 800 times, whatever it is, this is so important. Make sure you get it right. Uh, indeed, we could safely say that the Torah that we got from Moses was the same Torah that was transmitted Joshua and to King David and to Ezra and to the Zudot and to Hillel and to Rabbi Akiva and to Rabbi Judah the Prince and written in the Mishnah a, a monumental effort a thousand rabbis over multiple uh, decades writing out the, the formalized finalized Mishnah codifying it into three books and then 300 years later the writing of the, of the Talmud and then we have the great leaders who wrote down the Halacha for us and indeed, we could safely say, as one of the 13 principles of faith, the Torah that we have today is the same Torah that the Almighty gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, next week, next week, next time, we will delve into the canonization of the Oral Torah. What changed historically that compelled the writing down, the finalized writing down of the Oral Torah and the various different stages, why the Mishnah is written down, the Talmud written down, Halacha continually needs to be written down, but the various stages where it was written down uh, over history. And then we'll get into the question of, back to the Sanhedrin, how it worked, what's the role of the rabbis, uh, how did that change over time, uh, to what extent, what are the responsibilities, requirements, uh, and what are the limitations of rabbinic authority, and what happens, of course, when something goes wrong.